1: Hello, welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and it's really nice to be back. I know it's been a while. My guest today is Amanda Bidnell. She's the author of The West Indian Generation, Remaking British Culture in London, 1945 to 1965 with Liverpool University Press. This book is a careful and beautifully rendered examination of a generation of artists, writers and musicians who landed in post-war London and navigated the cultural and aesthetic politics there. Less about racial division and conflict, and more about finding ways to belong to a late imperial Britain, the West Indian generation Bidnell writes about has not received the attention it deserves. It's a wonderful book, and I'm really glad to be speaking with Amanda today. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. So um,
1: let's start out with a little bit about yourself. How did you come to this project? How did you come to be a historian? Um, Tell us how you got to where you are today.
0: Well... Um this project in some ways it came out of nowhere in the sense that I, you know, I was doing my PhD and I really didn't I mean I consider myself a British cultural historian, um, but I hadn't done a lot of work on race um or even decolonization. My previous work had been about working class women. Um, but I really it was really almost purely an intellectual decision. Um, I've always been really interested in the 1950s. I think that decade is, whether you're talking about Britain or not, um, if you're talking about the Western world, I just, I don't know, people always talk about it as being a very conservative decade, um, this attempt to get back to normal after the war. But I always felt like it was always this wonderful puzzle. Um, There was so much going on under the surface. Um, You know, the people who took a stand in the 50s. I feel like they were so admirable um, because they were really seizing on this impulse to create something new, to change things. Um, So so I guess I started, started thinking about, you know, you have this group of people who start their life in the British Caribbean as British subjects and who, for various reasons, move to England and... They become British citizens, no red tape, um, and so they were really kind of uniquely positioned to to create some kind of new vision to to talk about themselves, to talk about um, England and how England could be better. Um, so, so I that was it was really just sort of an intellectual question I had with not really very much um, background to sort of what the answer would be, but I kind of wanted to explore it, and it was really interesting because. I still remember when I was first, I was in a class and we were trying to hash out what our, you know, what our topics would be for our dissertations. And I sort of mentioned this, this sort of intellectual dilemma. And the the professor who was running it, who's an, a wonderful historian, a wonderful person, he um, he said, you know, you really want to make sure that you are not just writing about you know, black people in Britain, but that you're writing about Britain. You really want this to be a British history. And at the time I was sort of befuddled by that remark. Cause I'm thinking, well, it would be British. <laughs> it would be British just by, you know, by the nature that these people were British, they were in Britain. And, um, and then as I started doing research and my sort of, the story started coming, coming together, I realized how true that was, <laughs> how how you know I could look at their cultural work, and I could see it so much as part of the larger British cultural narrative, and so that was at some point the the kind of contribution I decided to make,
1: yeah, I guess that's interesting, coming from the perspective of a Caribbean historian sort of thinking about that as the 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 boundaries if if they are even there between Caribbean and British history, but I want to start with the title actually. Um, the West Indian generation. And you say right at first that this is the story of a generation. And you set us up really nicely with Carolyn Steedman. And you suggest that this is a generation that's been overlooked by historiography of racial division. And I wonder if you can speak to that and talk a little bit more about what this particular generation contributes to that or sort of how how you see it as contributing to, to the the historiographic project.
0: Mm hmm. Um. Well, I mean that title didn't come to me right away and it was only after really working with the research and working with um you know with this body of writing I had um that I really did start to think of them as um a generation and as kind of a unique generation. Um yeah, I mean there is a framework in a lot of sort of black british history um that is what I would say kind of a conflictual framework. Um you know that sort of marks off you know, discrimination, um, whether it's popular discrimination or whether it's built into um the legal or political framework um as being a really um a foundational thing. And I agree with that. <laughs> I think that's a very, very smart um way to look at the post war history. But in this early period, um it wasn't so um, it wasn't so firm. And I think that this group of people had I mean, they did come from different walks of life, but they also had a really sophisticated politics. They they really did have a politics, um, and it wasn't the same as what would come later, That what would come in the 19, late 1960s and 1970s and 1980s. Um, I think in some ways there was a real optimism about the power of education um, to, to change things, to um, make, to improve... Quote unquote race relations. And they, that sort of really sophisticated politics, I feel like that has been overlooked. The idea that they could balance a, you know, a respect for Britain, for British culture, um, a real love for that, I mean, having grown up with that kind of education, um, and sort of balancing that with also a really lively politics of anti discrimination, a lively politics of, of, of anti colonialism. Um, so they, they they could combine the two in a way that I feel like has has been a little bit overlooked, and I feel like that's fascinating to look at.
1: I want to get into the details of these people a little bit later, but first, can you set the stage for us? What was the Britain that these artists walked into?
0: Um, it was, I mean, it was a real fresh, I would say, a real fresh post-war Britain. Um, there was you know, other historians have talked about this, you know, people like Wendy Webster and Jordana Belkin, but, um, there was a sense of, was, there was an afterglow from, uh, the British victory in the war. Uh, and that this was not just a British victory, but this was a, it was a European victory, but it was also a, uh, it was also a British imperial and a Commonwealth victory. Um, people tend to <laughs> poo poo the importance of the Commonwealth, um, as an as an entity, but also as an idea, and I think that idea was still very potent and held a lot of promise for a lot of people, um, not just in the colonies, but in um, the British government and in the, in the British media and the, at the BBC and places like that. So, so yeah, I mean, I do think that you know, again, people talk about this push towards conservatism, but I also think there was a real optimism about the possibilities about making life better for people. Um, about making a britain and a british empire or british commonwealth that could be could be a force of good um and again it all sounds kind of cheesy and it sounds kind of corny these days but um i do think it was a powerful influence and you see it in you see it in the media in britain at the time and it was definitely a vision i think that was shared by a lot of the uh, migrants who came over after the war
1: so let's talk about um, the artists a little bit and the organization of the book. The book is, has artists at the center, but it's not necessarily organized by individuals, but rather mm-hmm. by media or institutions. So we have radio and a little bit of TV. We have music and calypso in particular. We have sculpture with the work of Ronald Moody and then a chapter on film and one on theater. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to organize it this way and how hard was it to choose the particular artists you, you ultimately rested on?
0: Well, um, I wish I could say that it was a, a grand plan from the beginning. It absolutely wasn't. Um, it really was a product of, um, the research and what I could find. Um, and, and then it, it did end up kind of sliding into these, these sort of different media or different art forms, which, which was kind of nice. So they are, they do kind of function as individual case studies, but I am, tr- I am also trying to balance that with making some larger arguments or seeing some larger patterns. Um, um in in all these different people's work and i mean some of these people didn't even know each other so so that's an added challenge but um it really was um a product of getting enough information getting finding enough research um on again this was not a this there was not this really vivid west indian community that had kind of coalesced or become or had self-identified in the 1950s so you know when i went to the BBC Written Archives, which was the first place I visited. And I, I remember going in thinking, I'm gonna find nothing. <laughs> I had booked in three days and I was thinking, I might find nothing. I might be done by two o'clock. Um but in the end I found all kinds of stuff. But um it was the stories of Edgar Connor and Pearl Connor and Cy Grant that that I felt like I had I had the most meat. Um and the same with like someone like Ronald Moody. Um his papers had just become available actually at the Hyman Kreitman Research Center, which is part of the Tate. Um, So I really kind of seized on that. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was really about availability. I'm not saying that there's not a lot of other stuff out there. um, But, you know, for my kind of limited time I had in London, those were the, these were the, the documents that I found. So I guess I was just lucky that I was able to kind of pull at least one great story from each of these different archives that I visited.
1: Yeah. Let's start with the BBC. Um, it was home to, and actually ended up engaging a lot of West Indian artists. Yes. And um, you have the the Connors and then Cy Grant. And so uh, how would you characterize their contribution? What did they, what did they, what did they bring to the BBC?
0: Um, well, I mean, I think I, again, this is really cumulative. Again, I, I pulled a few individuals, but um, you know, the BBC was, I mean, It was, if you were a a cultural person, if you were a poet or a writer or an actor or a singer, I mean, and you came to London, the BBC was almost the first place you would go. And it was probably the place where you had the biggest chance of initial success anyway. Um, So, I mean, the BBC, again, with its commitment to public service and public education, again, in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, there was there was a real feeling at the BBC that to get as many of these people on the air as possible on television or later on television or um, on the radio. And it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just for the overseas services. Of course, you know, that was, that was a huge, um, that was a huge source of employment for a lot of um, um, Commonwealth and um, British subjects in London. But, but I mean, with, with the increasing visibility of migration, West India migration to London, there was a real feeling in the BBC about trying to sort of jump on this and and represent it to um, the British public. Um, and I think there probably was a, a desire to, you know, be the first to represent it or to um, have some control over how how that was represented. Um, there is a sense within the BBC of, you know, again, that this is about educating, you know, British radio listeners or British TV viewers. Um, and so I think there was a sense that um, we've got to do this in what they viewed as the right way. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the the cultural diversity that the BBC wanted to present, especially from the British Empire and Commonwealth, um, that was, you know, a lot of that could come from these new these new arrivals
1: and yet at the same time i found this really interesting part of the chapter towards the end the bbc seems to tire of them a little bit Mm -hmm. and move on Um, and you kind of slid over that a little bit i was wondering if you can talk a, a little more about that and maybe sort of speculate as to why that happened
0: um yeah i mean i'm not even sure if i would put it that way that it was losing interest um certainly, in the case of particular individuals like Edric Connor, you can see that um but I think with Edric Connor and Cy Grant, and this probably didn't happen very much because um you know they were two of probably the most visible um West Indian personalities on the sort of b b c as far as the home services were concerned, as far as the British public was concerned um and they both got to a place where. They had that visibility, they had that clout, and as would be very natural, they wanted to use that. They wanted to use that to, um, whether it was in the case of Cy Grant, to branch out to different kinds of roles. To I feel like Cy Grant really had a lot of star power, um, and he was a real natural um, in that sense. And I think I got the feeling that he wanted to capitalize that on much of- as much as possible. With the case of Edric Connor, I felt like he really had um, a very kind of altruistic. He wanted to increase the visibility and the respect of the West Indian community. He wanted, and not just in London, but also um, in the Caribbean. Um, and so he really wanted to promote that culture um, and make that more visible instead of being sort of slotted into whatever roles, singing or dramatic roles that the BBC thought were suitable. So they both were individuals that got to that point where they could actually have that discussion, because they gained enough notoriety to do that. Um, and so it's in their cases that you really see this push and pull. And yeah, and eventually, you know, eventually you see where that, where that ceiling was for the BBC. You know, Mm -hmm. they really wanted to promote Cy Grant. They wanted to put him in all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, you could see their discomfort with having him um, as a leading man. Um, And with Edric Connor, who wanted to, he wanted to start directing his own stuff. Um, And yeah, and he was really about, I mean, he had been interested in Caribbean folklore, even when he first came over. So that was still a real passion project for him. And he wanted to go to the Caribbean. He wanted to film footage there. Um, and you could see them again, backing away, you know, we could do this better in our own studios, um, Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of having that more authentic footage. Um, so yeah, so they're both interesting and that you see, I mean, one thing I kind of suggest, um, in this project is that. By focusing on these instances of collaboration, it's not in an effort to paint this really rosy picture where everyone got along and then later on they didn't. It's actually really useful for finding the limits of that collaboration. So you can start to see this early post war period and see how it is a precursor and not a stranger to the period that followed it. You know, if there is disillusionment, in the West Indian community or among black artists by the late sixties and seventies or early sixties, um, where does that come from? Yeah. And, and yeah. there you can see, well, okay, you know, there was a lot of acceptance from the BBC um, and they really had a explicit mission to um, for this kind of diversity, but you can see where ultimately those ambitions um, on behalf of their artists would ultimately be frustrated.
1: Yeah. There was a kind of, I thought there was a contrast um, between that and the Calypso musicians who seemed better able to find these ready-made contexts to slide into. Um, Not that they were necessarily sort of more accepting, but that they were just sort of more, um, more wholly constructed for them to be able to fit into. I mean, you have this really um, wonderful quote about the, the Calpsonians that are in, um, in London. And it's amazing that they were all there, Lord Kitchener, Lord Invader, Lord Beginner. Um, and you say about them that they quote, articulate a generous late Imperial vision of belonging in the 1950s. I really just, I love the way you mm-hmm. phrase that. And so, um, how does that work and how, how complex was the music? Because uh, I mean, it, you do talk about the ways that it sort of with satire and, and, um, sort of double entendre sort of, it insinuates things about racial tensions, but it's also very playful. And so I want to, I want to hear more about, about Mm -hmm. that music.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like the Californians benefited from um, not having to work with an institution like the BBC or any kind of big institution. I mean, they were playing small clubs um, in some cases, opening their own clubs outside of London. Um, And um, so, and they were operating in this sort of nightclub atmosphere, although you can see them sort of moonlighting or daylighting, um, um, you know, in spots on the BBC, writing music for the BBC or um or for other other um, television companies at the time and getting that kind of they did get that kind of real public exposure. I mean, you know, about Princess Margaret being this huge Calypso fan and she loved Lord Kitchener and all this kind of thing. But really, I mean in terms of their bread and butter, they were, you know, working at nightclubs and that sort of thing. And so I feel like they really could, <laughs> they 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 could be um they could be a little franker um, and they could be a little naughtier about how they how they wrote about um how they wrote about race or how they um, wrote about living in london um so so yeah so that was an opportunity and 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 still like, you know a very and still be very popular um but yeah i felt like they really <laughs> i feel like they really shouldered they, their way in you know things you know writing songs about things that would be taboo in another context writing about you know, white female police officers um in England um in a sexual way, which, you know, would have been, you know, the subject of a of a, a you know, an Ealing Studios movie a movie with great you know, shocking gasps and that's that that sort of thing. Um and yet they could they just wrote about that stuff. They wrote about, you know, they wrote about, you know, mixed marriages, um, in a way that the BBC would have program, you know, I came across a program about mixed marriage. And again, in this very serious, um, very serious con context, like do mixed marriages work? And you have, you know, Nadia Catoos, who was a, a West Indian actress who, um, was married to, um, a white Englishman and, you know, her talking about it in a very serious way and and it, in a way to educate people. And yet these Calibsonians can write about it in a sort of really jubilant way. Um, it, you know, just sort of embracing it without all of that, you know, without all of that fanfare, without all of that kind of shock and awe. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know if this is, I mean, that's partly their, that's partly their pedigree. And if you look at, you know, the research subjects that come up in my book, the majority of them, not all of them, but the majority of them were middle class in the West Indies, you know. Stuart Hall has written about how, when he was a kid, he would never have been allowed to go near a Calypso tent because that mm-hmm. was low class <laughs> and mm-hmm. and he wasn't so in that case, the Calypsonians are bringing that same attitude over with them, you know to London, off mm-hmm. operating in a slightly different sphere um but still but still managing to to gain that visibility, have their lyrics gain that visibility, and there is a sense that they were writing to a British audience in the sense that they knew that, you know, that British people wanted to hear Calypso's about London or they wanted to hear Calypso's about, you know, British politics. Um, and so they catered to that. They did cater to that audience.
1: Yeah. And then sort of moving along to the, to the next person that you talk about, Ronald Moody, who's similarly, I guess I would say ambivalent about um, some, some, some things West Indian, you could maybe put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you open with an anecdote about how he didn't like to be called a black British artist, but at the same time, he was also deeply influenced by African forms mm-hmm. and African art that he came to through, you argue, a kind of European context. Right. And mm-hmm. I thought that he was really one of the more complicated figures yeah, it was, in this.
0: Yeah. You're in right. this book.
1: yeah. And how, how, so here's, here's the question. If he didn't want to be called a Black British artist, how do you think he would have liked to have been remembered? And what was he reaching for in his sculptures?
0: Right. Um, yeah, this was the, this was the hardest chapter to write. Um, I really, really wrestled with it. Um, because I felt like that was just what you asked. How would he describe himself? How would he want to be remembered? I really struggled with that. I wasn't getting a really clear answer. Um, and what I realized. I mean, because, because in this case, I have a chapter on one individual really working largely in isolation. And, um, and, you know, people are complicated. (laughs) You can't, um, we're talking about experience, we're talking about art, and you cannot reduce it to, um, to a sort of pithy sentence. But what I realized is that what was really fascinating to me is, is not just about how he would identify define himself, but how over time people defined him and how that changed and how you can see patterns in that. And these were not necessarily things that he, these were not necessarily um, categorizations that he ever encouraged. Um, I think he would have probably called himself um, a universalist. Um, He took he seemed to see um he seemed to see commonalities between these ancient cultures that he was so influenced by, whether he's talking about India, whether you're talking about, you know, Egyptian statuary. Um and then eventually, not at the beginning, but later on looking at Caribbean um folklore and that sort of thing. Um and I think he saw he saw all these things as as being unified in a particular way philosophically. And in some ways he saw them as, and this is not unusual for artists at the time is, as, as seeing these um, in stark opposition to the progress of like Western art or Western culture or philosophy, which he saw, I mean, rightly so considering his experiences in the second world war um, as, as basically coming to their nadir (laughs) with the um, onset of, um nuclear war and that sort of thing so um yeah i think he would have seen himself as a as a sort of universalist i think he would have been against being pigeonholed in any way you know and this that goes back to that quote you referred to he said mm-hmm. i'm an artist first and foremost that's how he would identify himself and that i mean maybe that's not helpful <laughs> for people but i think again you know he is he's one man and 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 historically, looking at him in a larger concept is looking at how this same person with really reasonably consistent approach and reasonably consistent beliefs um, can be categorized so differently over time,
1: yeah, uh, and the politics of those categorizations mm-hmm. just keep changing it's mm-hmm. it's really fascinating to think about somebody like that mm-hmm. um, so moving towards the towards the final. Chapters in which you take up film and then theater, and then also really sort of hinge them around these brothers Lloyd and Barry Record, who mm-hmm. seem to loom just to, this seems to be everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> they do <laughs> during this period. Um, it, but one of the nice things about both of these chapters is that you really um, you take two or three films, two or three plays, um, and really track this kind of evolution um, in the ways that they in the ways that the representations of things changed, even in the course of I don't know, maybe not even two decades, just a mm-hmm. decade and a half oh. or something. Mm-hmm. So and at the same time, there's some really persistent themes. Um, so I wonder if we can, if you can just talk about, for instance, say the Pool of London and Flame in the Streets. Um, what were those films? What was the difference between them? And what were the what were the kind of threads that, that followed all the way through?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I I, I seize on, on this figure of Earl Cameron because he, um, he appeared in all the, a lot of these big movies um that were supposed to be about you know race relations in England at the time um and he's always positioned a little differently um i mean i feel like with pool of london um which came out i'm not now i'm struggling to remember i think it comes out in 1951 <laughs> but um um with pool of london it's not even yet a um you know the idea of, of you know, racial migration or or, or West Indian migration or or miscegenation or th- those concepts are not even really brought to the fore yet. Um, you know, I think Earl Cameron plays a character named Johnny, and Johnny is not not living in Britain. He is he works on a ship, um, and he sort of falls kind of helplessly infatuated with. Um, with you know one of the main characters um a white woman and yet that relationship is sort of neutered in a couple of ways one is that johnny's character is um you know he's so innocent he's almost like he's like a young boy who has dreams but but that's it there's no kind of real grit to his character at all um and 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 that neither of them think of the idea of a kind of romantic relationship as even a possibility. Um, they share this sort of touching connection, but again, it's, um, it's very innocent. Um, so you can see, you know, this movie kind of, and that, and that in itself is a sort of secondary plot line as well. Um, whereas by the time you get to flame in the streets, which is, um, you know, 12 or 13 years later, um, you know the the attitude <laughs> has changed completely, and that is a movie um that is about class, but it's also very very much about um you know you know race relations and again it's always it's always a white woman and a black man and but that movie more than any of the movies that came before it took it as really took it as its centerpiece I'm uh, not just in you know the central love story but also in, in in its attempt to give more of a context to look at other couples who are who are, who are um, other mixed race couples to to try to zoom out even in a small way from this kind of central domestic drama. It doesn't totally succeed obviously in doing that but um, but and by that time, that movie was presented as a sort of Flaming inferno of passion. I <laughs> mean, um, um, the fact that it takes place on, or the climax happens on Guy Fawkes Night, it was literally a burning inferno, and um, that was very much how it was, how it was presented, and it does say something about um, the way that "quote unquote" spectre had moved to the forefront of sort of popular discussion.
1: How do you think we would watch those films today?
0: well we would and i think this is how a lot of people in the past who have written about them have seen them as um or or at least until until comparatively recently i mean you if you watch any of those movies singly you would you would see just stereotypes so <laughs> that's what you would see you would see that this is a bunch of stereotypes but actually if you watch them in succession and again you have this helpful figure of earl cameron who is consistently in these movies in various roles and he always had a real sort of quiet dignity about him. I think it's kind of wonderful that he was ultimately the person who played these roles because he, I don't, I have never seen him in a role where he is not worthy of respect, you know, where he is a figure of where he's poked fun at, or he's, even when he plays someone who later on in the mid sixties, he starts playing people who are not wholly good or noble that they are, you know, that they, you know, do, they're not perfect. Um, but he still manages to kind of imbue them with dignity but anyway, as you see, as you see these movies going along, you can see that um, there is at least an increasing attempt to um to challenge perhaps challenge viewers' misconceptions um or or their assumptions um and to 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 be more complex about it. I mean th- this this era and I mean in general, <laughs> 1950s film in Britain tends to be denigrated because it is so sort of pompously middle-class um, and it is so kind of can be so cloying in its um, attempt to, um, to educate viewers or to talk about quote-unquote serious issues. Um, but I think we need to give it a little more credit and, um, and you know, and, and see. And again, you can see this attempt. There is this attempt at collaboration. And again, we can really see the limits of it. Um, even by the mid-1960s. Um, but it's still mm-hmm. worthwhile looking at, you know, looking at how that narrative progressed or how it changed over time.
1: It's interesting to put those up against the plays that you mm-hmm. write about, because I think that the trajectory there is slightly different, mm-hmm. actually. And you talk about Barry Records plays and the, the theater, and that that context seems somehow to be, I, I want to say, almost more sophisticated and and recognized as such by the critics, right? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, flesh to a tiger, th- there's so much to talk about in these, in these, in these three plays, flesh to mm-hmm. a tiger, which I was fascinated by the context of West Indian voices and accents in London, right. And how that was mm-hmm. received, um, absolutely by, by, by well, by some and not by others. And then you and your small corner, that's also about class. And there was real emphasis about that. Um, and then Skyvers, which um, has no black people at all <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right? Um, and then he's sort of finally rid of this of the the label of the black dramatist um but you sort of argue that's still uh, somehow about race and it also speaks to the social issues so like how 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 do we put those plays in in their context they seem right. to be so so um div- do- so different from each other so different from um, yes. the films actually. Mm-hmm. How, how do we how do we think about those?
0: Well, I mean, I really love I mean you're not supposed to have favorites when it comes to <laughs> research. Centers, but I have a couple of favorites, I really love Pearl Connor. Um she because you can see these interviews interviews with her when she's in her eighties or even 90s. she's so um she's still so sharp and she was I mean she did so much tremendously behind the scenes. Um she was just smart as whip. Um but I also love Barry Record because he was such an iconoclast. Um, and he, you know, he took issue with everything (laughs) and yet he was also extremely political. And, um, and I think in his plays, you can see, um, especially you in your your small, small corner, which would probably be the, the obvious thing you'd think of, but you can really see how, which goes back to sort of one of my original arguments, which is that, you know, if you look at these artworks or you look at these programs or you look at this creative output that is coming from the West Indian artistic community or these are West Indian artists, um, whether singly or whether in collaboration with British companies or institutions, you really see that, at least in the 1950s, that this is not just a reaction to mainstream British culture. It is, um, it is a real complement to it. And we, we really should look at, we really should look at these, um, cultural artifacts along with everything else because it really enhances that post-war British cultural narrative. And, and I feel like he, and I feel like he really does that. So you take a play like You and Your Small Corner, which I was thinking about this just the other day, which in some ways is so much like that, you know, that beacon of Royal court's um, reputation, look back in anger in and, and it. It takes so many of its um, beats from that. And I have no idea whether that was intentional or not. I think it wasn't. I don't think, I'm not sure he was, if he had followed that play and maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but either way, um, either way, he is taking this narrative of working class, angst (laughs) um and again this idea of like you know this working class man trying not having a place for himself um and he he's he's taken a narrative and he's added this element of um of colonialism and race and class and education um that just enriches it so much while at the same time finding a place for you know or showing the place of um, West Indian artists and, and West Indian people, um, in these big questions. So anyway, i I feel like I've drifted off topic, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like because he was working with the Royal court, which had this self-conscious, um, mission to be, to exhibit different voices, um, but also to exhibit different voices, but to also, um, but also to exhibit them as part of, you know, to, to more accurately represent British society, um, you know, to, to showcase voices that might not have been heard in British theater before, um, that probably definitely hadn't been heard in British theater before. And I feel like, um, Barry record really did slot into that. Um, and he was, I mean, he was an angry young man. Um, if you can call any of these people, angry young men, um, (laughs) and and um so you can take a play like flesh to a tiger, and you think okay it's 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 set in in Jamaica um and there's not really much reference to britain at all <laughs> um it's really about um it's about Jamaican um class and about religion and things like that, and yet the royal court embraced it for what it saw as its authenticity, for its inherent drama, and because Barry Record was living in London at the time. I mean, he, this was this was the new British drama. Um even despite the fact that it's not explicitly addressing, you know, issues that might be pertinent to domestic Britons. Um but of course by his second play you in your, your small corner, that him as a new voice of British drama is becomes much clearer um until by the end when you get to skyvers um he's he he's taken a question that you know that that could have been that could have been a play about race it could have been a play about race relations but i feel like in making it to play about the british education system um and working class students who are dealing with an education that's preparing them for a future and a dead end job Um, That gives them no scope at all for, you know, personal passion um, or intelligence. Um, I feel like he's, you know, you can say, oh, he's thrown off the West Indian dramatist tag. But I feel like if you look at his body of work, he's drawing connections, you know, he's drawing connections between, you know, between these two very different, what people would see as two very discrete subjects. um, And he's putting them within the same frame. Yeah. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like, in some ways, what this book does is is just really shift perspective, but um, but it remains within with the West Indians in London, and so what you get is this kind of countercurrent against so much of the, so much of the literature about the 1950s and the West Indies is about proto-nationalism and the emergence of a nationalism, and kind of budding nationalism and mm-hmm. sort of looking towards the future and all of that kind of stuff. And you just, you see something so different here. Um, I think that you've really made a case for their, for their presence in a very British context. Um, it's really, it's really fascinating. And I guess to, just to, to, um, to wrap up, I'm wondering how all of these cultural artifacts, these figures, these plays and films, how are they being remembered in the UK today or even in the West Indies? Um, are they um, are there revivals of this material? Or are they being taken up again? Um, mm-hmm. Does any of this stuff resonate anew?
0: It, yeah. You think it is starting to it is starting to um, some people, some still have. You still don't hear much about, for example, Barry Record, <laughs> um, although I don't know why. Although his um, his play Skyvers, which got the best, Bust to a Tiger, had got mixed reviews at the time. Both You and your, your Small Corner and Skyvers were very well received, but You and Your Small Corner was staged on a much smaller scale at the theater upstairs. Um, so Skyvers was probably his most, um, his most prominent play. And it, it was revived, and it was, I want to say in the early 2000s, not long before he passed away, maybe a couple of years before he passed away. And he, um, you know, you know, apparently he was very touched because he had no idea that any of his plays would ever be staged again, but it really, you know, reviews of it at the time, you know, talk about how much, how much those themes still hold up, how much that play holds up and is still kind of relevant in British society. But, but as far as the others, absolutely Ronald Moody, who upon his death had really been, largely forgotten and i think his niece, C- niece Cynthia Moody who had sort of inherited um all of his papers and his his estate she did um a lot of work to make him more visible and i feel like um, you can see um he was Ronald Moody also got um he got a lot of work as a portrait sculptor so his portrait of um Harold Moody his brother is on display at the Tate for the Tate the or sorry the National Gallery's National Portrait Gallery, excuse me, at least it was the last time I was there. Um, And so it is, you you are having, some of these people are being remembered, some more so than others. And I feel like it's a way that, um, you know, a lot of these artists by the end of the, by the early 60s were feeling very rejected. I feel like they had this beautiful vision of what, um, what Britain could be. How it could really be a multi- multicultural place? How you could celebrate all these different cultures from all across the empire and Commonwealth? Um, and I feel like their vision was just rejected by the sixties. And I feel like now, very very belatedly, there is an attempt to kind of rehabilitate um, some of their work um, in a way to you know you know remember that beautiful image and. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's almost very bittersweet, um, to see these people, some of these people finally getting recognized.
1: Yeah. I mean, as people, as you say, it, it might sound a little bit cheesy, but there is this way in which people seem to be looking for hope or, um, sort of so- something, something more hopeful these
0: days. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah.
1: So it'll, absolutely. Be, it'll be interesting to see what happens, what happens to these guys.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I will. And and I feel like this book is, I mean, I was doing the research and the book has come out really at the very end of these people's lives. Um, It was really when I started doing research that, you know, quite a few of them died within a five year span or something like that, or five or 10 year span. Mm. Um, So I feel like it is the perfect time
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, to remember them for sure.
1: Okay. Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really had a great time.
0: Yeah, I know. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me.